0: You're listening to the Domecast,
1: where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics.
0: Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week from the News and Observer. And here with me are Colin Campbell, Will Doran, Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, and Matthew Adams. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about this week. We've got a possible budget deal in the offing. Uh, And by the time you hear this, uh, it may be more clear than we know right now. Uh, We've got uh, an overhaul of uh, changes to Medicaid to talk about and uh, redistricting, some developments there. Uh, In addition to a whole lot of uh, smaller developments on everything from uh, the bill related to left lane drivers, uh, to billboards to Sunday morning hunting. So we'll see what we get to. Um, but, Colin, real quick first on the budget, since we don't know a whole lot of detail,
1: um, what's the latest? Yeah, so uh, when I was trying to get a sense for the timeline on Thursday, uh, it kind of differed depending on who you talked to. Uh, Tim Moore, the House Speaker, was... Uh, very hopeful that a budget could get out on Friday uh, if they were able to uh, get the Senate to agree to, I guess, their, their final offers on some of the, the things uh, leaning out there. Uh, then we talked to Senate Leader Phil Berger, uh, and we asked him sort of, did he think, you know, we when he thought we'd have a budget, he took this long pause and then says, well, I'm an optimistic person. I think we can we might get one next week. So he seemed a little less hopeful that uh, things would come out. The latest that we've heard um, is actually a tweet from Representative Chuck McGrady at about 2.45 a.m. Friday morning uh, who was replying to a account called NCGA Coffee Pot that was asking him about sort of the Pope smoke situation. I mean, we, we joke every year about, you know, white smoke coming from the legislative building when they have a budget deal um, and um, McGrady said that the uh, at 2:45 a.m. that the smoke was there and, and told the coffee pot that you know they'd uh, agreed on I think in his words a broad outline of the budget so there may be still some details to be worked out uh, and then of course the uh, legislative staff has to actually uh, produce the document that reflects all the things that they agreed to so that can take some time so it's a brave new world that we have coffee
0: pots uh, giving us this information what who is behind the coffee pot uh... you know
1: i'm not sure my guess is it's some sort of legislative staffer or a lobbyist the joke of course being that you know the the coffee pot is a much to love uh, device in that building because everyone needs their caffeine and their coffee pot pots in every committee room used to be coffee pots available to the general public who were in the know but apparently that was uh dropped out this session because of some cost concerns that uh the, the government was funding uh the coffee habits of about a few hundred lobbyists and that was Uh, causing them to not meet their budget for the the legislative building's operation. But anyway, so there's an account that sort of jokes about the need for coffee at the legislature, and uh, I guess the account was uh, asking questions of Representative McGrady, who's one of the the top House budget writers, uh, and McGrady uh, felt the need to respond to them at 2.45 in the morning. must have had a lot of coffee before doing that. Yeah, I mean, if you're up at 2.45 negotiating the budget, I suspect you're pretty well caffeinated, and that, that coffee pot is at the front of your mind.
2: <laughs> or McGrody is somehow beholden to the coffee pot. It's true,
1: yeah. I mean, you, know, you, you, you never know uh, who owes who favors in politics these days.
0: <laughs> so, if we have a budget uh, potentially next week,
1: at least, uh, is how,
0: how much is there left to do before the, the legislature leaves, or is that still really usually the budget
1: unclear? tends to be one of the last things? Uh, there have been a couple other signs that we're close to uh, a budget deal. There's some reg reform bills. Uh, that were rolled out this week in both the House and Senate, which is usually one of the, the final tasks that uh, the legislature has uh, before they go home. So uh, that's got to get done. Um, I think I, the lingering question is whether they do things like redistricting or voter ID, but it doesn't look like they're going to try to do that before they, they leave town.
2: There was some chatter that the Senate was going to shut down committees next week. Did you heard that? I had not
1: heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me. There was a lot of committee work this week, um, which was sort of an indication that they're trying to get everything out through committee. And there were actually a couple moments this week where – it was clear that the bill that they were working on shouldn't have been in committee. In fact, there was one where they had four or five different amendments to the bill to throw out in committee. They were all from the sponsors, and everyone's sort of scratching their heads, and why didn't, why didn't they put this in the bill before they brought it to the committee? Um, but it was clearly an effort that uh, they were told to clear the decks, and these were the remaining mm-hmm. bills, and so the, the committee work was a little sloppier than it usually is. Uh, from that sense.
3: Well, I kind of agree with Lynn. If Once the Senate does start sending that signal that they're shutting down committee meetings, that definitely is the sign that that the end is near because when the Senate's done, they're done. Yeah, and the Senate's
1: (laughs) usually the one that takes the lead in in past sessions of saying, we're we're tired, we're going home, and we don't care about any of the rest of the bills. Yeah,
2: they're the first to pack their bags and... Yeah, we're so leaving.
1: Yeah, and we should note, you know, this is the the first year of a two-year session. So uh, the bills, as long as they crossed over by the crossover deadline, will be eligible to be resurrected uh, next year if they don't pass before they leave town. So um, uh, some unfinished business may uh, make a resurgence uh, come next spring when they're back in town.
0: Are they trying to adjourn before uh, the court rules on whether uh, they need to redistrict? Uh, and have a special election, uh, would that have, would would this, would the court ruling kind of looming out there have any effect on when they leave?
1: You know, it's hard to tell um, whether they're sort of have that in the back of their minds. Obviously, they're thinking about, you know, the timeline for that and what may be the most advantageous way to do that. But of course, a lot of it's going to be up to the court. If the court gives them a timeline um, and a deadline of, you know, Say August 30th or something to redistrict, and obviously they're either going to have to come back in a special session or they're going to have to stay longer. Um, one way or the other, uh, there, there's not too many ways they can avoid that. Um, but certainly, if they're they're out of town, I mean, they, their lawyers may be able to make the argument of it would be uh, unreasonable impediment or something to to force them back into town. And shouldn't they just do it in you know next April or May when they've got a normal session and are going into a 2018 election? I mean, I think for Republicans. Um, they wanted to delay the redistricting as much as possible. They don't want to. They've made it clear they don't want a 2017 election. Um, and I think the later they're able to draw the maps in 2018, uh, the better off they. And I think to some extent the Democratic incumbents are because uh, you have less opportunity for. Uh, challengers to come forward and build a campaign. And already there are a number of, of Democrats who are sort of building a campaign without a district. They don't know where they'll be running, but they're starting to raise money and telling people they're going to run, including a, a guy I talked to and Kerry a couple weeks ago. Um, so there's all this sort of uh, strategy going on in, in back rooms to try to figure out how to avoid a redistricting situation that um, negatively impacts the parties uh, come 2018 or 2017, if it comes to that. How does the Supreme Court's latest decision play into that? They they
0: issued an order yesterday that delays the process of sending this back down to the lower court. court. And we should say that this is about the state, House, and Senate districts, of course, having to be redrawn uh, after it was determined at the uh, uh, lower court level that they were racial gerrymanders, that 28 of them are racial gerrymanders. The Supreme Court upheld that, and then yesterday – Um, they uh, issued a a new order. So how does that uh, play into this?
1: Yeah, so that's going to be an aspect of this that uh, I think the Republicans, and particularly Senate Leader Phil Berger, was quick to uh, promote that uh, ruling on Thursday in a a tweet basically saying that he believes this means that the Democrats' desire to have a 2017 special election is uh, much less likely. I mean, I think it still could happen. Um, I think there's also the potential that the courts could schedule election, not in 2017, but before the uh, next legislative session. The argument that Roy Cooper has been making is uh, because this uh, legislature has been elected under districts now found to be unconstitutional, that before they meet again, which would be in 2018 for the short session, they should have new districts. So the timeline's a little up in the air there, but basically what this means in the short term is that it's going to be a couple more weeks probably before we hear from the lower court that set some of the specific uh, dictates to the legislature because uh, the effort to speed that up and get a, a faster decision on that has been rejected by the Supreme Court.
3: It's interesting to me that the uh, level of rhetoric over this <clears throat> is, is more pitched than usual. Uh, I don't know, Matthew, maybe you could talk about that. The, uh, the, uh, you covered the um, NAACP event when they delivered some uh, letters to the House and <clears throat> Senate leaders this week. Kind of picking up on this idea that these are not, it's not only unconstitutional seats, but everything this legislature has done has been unconstitutional for the last five or six years. And in fact, uh, William Barber sent out a statement saying they were in fact trespassing uh, at the legislative building. So it's that's funny kind of for a where guy we're who at. is
1: currently facing charges that he was trespassing it, at
3: the legislative it, it building a, just a few weeks perhaps. ago. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, well, it is weird because when you, for the last week, there's been so much regarding redistricting and so much of this talk, obviously, William Barber this week, um, you know, he was pushing for, yeah, the legislature to shut down and cease all activities because they are such an unconstitutional body, Which, you
1: know, with the budget deadline of June 30th would have been a little difficult for state government to keep functioning. But, you know, from a
4: uh, you know, (laughs) rhetorical standpoint, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that was, you (laughs) know, and even Phil Berger's office, you know, they responded that, well, yeah, we've still got a budget and we've still got a lot of other things that we've got to address. You know, they mentioned Hurricane Matthew still recovery funds that, you know, they hope to address. And so there there's still a lot that they have to do. So for that request on Barber. And of course, you've even got now the state GOP chairman, Robin Hayes, responding that, you know, no, there's there's no reason to be redistricting right now. You know, you've you know, his his call on the redistricting is well pointing the finger at Governor Roy Cooper for when he first started yeah, back that, in the nineties become
1: a, a common theme. And I, I wrote a little bit out this, this week on, uh, what Roy Cooper did or didn't do in terms of redistricting, because uh, at one point during one of these debates, uh, Senator Harry Brown held up this, um, Map of Roy Cooper's Senate district that he represented for a, a good chunk of the 1990s uh, in the uh, Rocky Mount area, and it's sort of it's got this sort of amoeba shape that goes through several different counties. It's your your standard, you know, oddly shaped uh, district that you know we we have now. We've had then. We've had in decades before then. Um, it looks and, like
0: one of those where you might be on a street, and on one side of the street is uh, one district, and the other side is yeah. You the you other really have to give like a
1: you know a, a property level map to see like you know is my house actually in this district because you certainly couldn't tell from the the sort of map that Harry Brown uh, held up, like which town in Edgecombe County are are part of these districts. But anyway, so I looked into it. Uh, Roy Cooper was not active in drawing the districts in 1992 that were used for the legislative races uh, throughout the 90s. At that point, he had just joined the Senate, uh, having moved over from the House. uh, So he was uh, pretty early in his uh, legislative career at that point, so probably voted, um, as best we can tell, in favor of the districts, but probably was not involved in, in drawing them up. And even the folks who did draw them up at the time, including uh, Dan Blue, who at that point was the House Speaker, he's now the uh, Senate Minority Leader, uh, basically said, you know, we don't really like these districts either, but uh, they were – told by the uh, Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice uh, that they violated the Voting Rights Act with their initial plan, um, and they needed to uh, change how they uh, developed minority districts so that uh, there would be more opportunity for African Americans to be elected to the legislature. And so in order to do that, they had to draw the districts in this kind of uh, – wacky way uh, that resulted in some, uh, some oddly shaped districts. Uh, however, those districts for the legislature managed to last through the 90s. There, there were probably some court challenges there, but none of them succeeded. So all the way through uh, the year 2000, those were the districts being used. Roy Cooper did have a larger part in redistricting for congressional districts Uh, a few years after that in the 1996 97 range uh, when there was uh, the congressional districts were struck down again for sort of a um, racial gerrymandering type issue. um, And Roy Cooper was the one in the Senate tasked with being the redistricting chairman to draw up the new maps. Um, And in that case, uh, there was some concern by the Republicans that he was drawing maps to partisan advantage. And he basically made it clear in his statements at the time he was drawing maps that would keep the current congressional incumbents in office. This was not like the maps that were drawn here in North Carolina this past year that caused Renee Elmers to end up losing her seat because she ended up having to run against uh, George Holding in the primary in this odd incumbent-versus-incumbent situation. Uh, At that point, the goal was to keep everybody, all 12 members of Congress, and at the time, that meant – Six Democrats in Congress, six Republican members in Congress, so it wasn't necessarily uh, to give Democrats some advantage in terms of how many seats they could get in, in, in North Carolina. Uh, it was really a half-and-half half split, and the districts Cooper drew and that were used uh, through the, the rest of the 90s uh, maintained that particular power dynamic.
0: Yeah, and then the, when the Republicans took over, uh, they were able to carve 10 to 3 advantage. Yeah, 10 to out of 3 the, is
1: what we've got now, both under the uh, redistricting plan for Congress that has been found unconstitutional and rejected and under the newer plan um, that's currently in use and probably will be for the next cycle.
0: Uh, and we're still waiting on a couple cases to, that could uh, be crucial in deciding whether congressional districts can be drawn with uh, to partisan advantage. Um, so you alluded to the fact that uh, Reverend Barber is not allowed in the legislative building anymore. So uh, what happened? Yeah, uh, so th-
1: this was his arrest, um, I guess it was a couple weeks ago, when he was uh, uh, protesting on a health care uh, event, mm-hmm. uh, calling the legislature to expand Medicaid. Uh, he and um, about, I guess, 30 or so other folks were... Arrested at that, charged with uh, trespassing, I believe was the charge. Um, and as part of that, they were banned from returning to the legislative building while those charges are pending. Uh, what Barbara told me uh, earlier this week is that typically uh, that happens and very quickly they can get that aspect of uh the charges dropped so that they can go back into the building uh because obviously his argument is you know that a this is a public building and b i have a constitutional right to petition my elected officials so i need to be able to go in the building uh but as of this week he doesn't have that ability so he actually had this press conference that matthew covered um outside the legislative building out front um and then he sent in some of his um other uh, NAACP members uh, to actually go inside the building and deliver some letters and petitions to lawmakers because he himself could not go in the building.
0: And they ran into some trouble.
1: Yeah, they did. Uh, and this was kind of a, an odd situation that was uh, caught on video. Uh, a group of NAACP activists were headed to House Speaker Tim Moore's office to deliver a letter. And this is something that happens all the time. Um, and the way Speaker Moore's office is constructed, um, you walk in off of the main hallway. There's a, an office where his receptionist sits at their desk. You know, they handle visitors and... The actual office where Moore himself sits is a room off of that that the public can't access unless they have an appointment to uh, meet with Moore himself. Uh, So they go in there um, and they're followed by Paul Koble, who is the uh, House Legislative or the uh, Legislative Service Officer for the entire building. So he basically oversees the staff, some of the day to day operations. Uh, He's pretty well known as a a Republican politician because he used to be the mayor of Raleigh. Uh, He was on the Wake County Commissioner just a few short years ago. he also was a, a congressional candidate. He uh, lost in the primary, I believe, to George Holding, who's now the congressman from Raleigh. Um, but he landed in this, you know, six-figure job working at the legislature. Um, and he comes in there and tells the group that they need to leave; that um, they can't be interrupting business by delivering this letter. And uh, the one of the NAACP folks, Tyler Swanson, challenges on that, him on that, uh, and then he threatens uh, Swanson and the group with arrest if they continue. All the while, uh, the uh, legislative or the General Assembly police chief, Martin Brock, is in the room, not really saying anything. It's clear from the video that Brock uh, had gone ahead and told both uh, Berger and Moore's offices that uh, this group was coming up and that they were okay to go in there. Um, the exchange with Moore's actual staffer is very polite, where she, you know, answers their questions, promises to deliver the letter to the speaker, um, and then the group, uh, while I guess Koble is still following them, uh, goes into Berger's office and, and has a very polite conversation with one of Berger's staff members. But so no one got arrested, but uh, certainly there was a lot of questions about. Um, what what exactly the building rules are what offices can you go into and what offices can't you go into and i i tried to get some clarity from that from coble himself but yeah uh, he did not reply to me okay all right
0: uh and lynn you covered the uh medicaid bill that's going through the legislature uh this week uh we don't know how far it will go because it's running into a whole lot of opposition yeah, from and it wasn't doctors really groups intended to be a
2: medicaid bill <laughs> uh so here, here's the setup um uh, two years ago, um, the legislature passed this huge bill um, changing Medicaid that will, you know, touch everybody who is pretty much is on Medicaid—some uh, two million people at this point. Um, and uh, separately, there is a uh, regional mental health office that everybody considers to have gone rogue um, by, you know, paying their CEOs too much. You know, buying alcohol with the government money and taking flying first class and charter flights and having some really, yeah, we had an audit, yeah, yeah, criticizing them pretty heavily for um, for their spending. So we have two separate ideas, seemingly that uh, were suddenly melted into one this week. um, That uh, took a bill out of the house that was pretty much focused on uh, trying to uh, control. CEO salaries at these regional offices and became a bill that would uh, fundamentally uh, rewrite um, this sweeping Medicaid bill. Uh, There was an outcry, um, and uh, the bill got out of committee, um, even though there weren't too many people who Thought it was a good idea. There were a lot of people who said, well, we really wanted that uh, bill that was focused on Cardinal. Why are we rewriting uh, Medicaid? Um, So uh, one of the things that it would do would, uh, uh, the Medicaid bill essentially says that there's no, there wouldn't be any more fee for service. You know, there wouldn't be separate bills for operations and, you know, uh, shots for kids and whatever Medicaid pays for, that um, there would go to a system that of managed care where companies would get a set fee for, um, for treating patients and they would have to live within the money they get. And so ins- uh,
0: insurance companies would, uh, under the big sweeping bill that passed, insurance companies would really be running – the system right as opposed to sort of the doc what is it basically doctors that that right. run it now, now. groups cr- of doctors now, now
2: it's groups of doctors that essentially are you know in charge running medicaid um, and then it but now it would go to there've been some collaborations of hospitals that have come together and said okay we're going to be one of these entities that is going to create a ma- create managed care doctors have come together and said okay we're going to be one of these companies that create Creates managed care, so it 's really taking it out of the you know these out of the doctor 's offices really and sort of making bigger uh, statewide systems. Um, one of the things that uh, is in this rewrite bill would be that okay doctors who don 't join a network and would still be billing fee for service would get their their um, get their fees cut. And some people worry that, well, what if a doctor says, "Well, I don't want to take less money than I'm taking now for a few pa- Medicaid patients I have. I'm just I'm not going to do it," which would mean uh, there's also there's already a worry that um, that uh, some patients are going to get different doctors and won't have the longtime doctors that they've had just because of the way the of the system the way the system is evolving and this uh, is kind of exacerbating that worry. Um, there's you know all kinds of uh, you know worries that what was proposed this week is going to create chaos on a whole number of levels, and the hospitals, the doctors, the dentists, and uh, the mental health organizations all are saying, well. What are you doing? Um, But it's going to go to – it looks like it's on its its way to the Senate floor. The House doesn't want it, um, and there is just a really strong sentiment that – you know, we just wanted to deal with with Cardinal, <laughs> we wanted to deal with the mental health offices and not this, these big sweeping changes um, that somehow got melded onto this uh, fairly straightforward bill. So um, there's a worry and a thought that, um, you know, with these two things now stuck together that nothing is going to happen with the uh, on the original problem or the original the original question is okay well how do we control the CEO salaries
0: Senator Ralph Heis spoke to why he wanted to do this what what was his rationale
2: well one of the big things that it would do is for a long time these um these state mental health offices were going to be outside Um, this bigger Medicaid plan they would still be able to run the way they are now he's saying well mental health is a mess it's not working Um, we're just going to say okay no no more grace period of several years as soon as this um, big Medicaid change happens mental health is going to be rolled in Um, and he says well that's going to take care of all of the problems we have now we'll get will get mental health and physical health together. There won't be any more of this cost shifting. All these questions they have about how much money um, these local mental mental health offices are holding on to, those would go away. Mental health offices would, you know, know, give their money back, essentially. So it's going to solve all these problems. Um, One of the things that the current law has is that dentists are no longer, wouldn't be in... um, in this whole uh part of this whole change dentists would now be rolled in um Heiss's, um thought is that there was no reason for dentists to be out in the first place uh but you know the guy from the dental society is saying well you know this is just going to mean that dentists aren't going to take medicaid anymore i mean it's just going to make the dental problem worse so um so this is heiss 's reasoning we're, we're headed this way anyway let's just do it now mm-hmm.
0: So something we sometimes see at the end of legislative sessions where whole new issues uh, just somehow surface and, uh, you know, come up even if there's uh, widespread opposition among a lot of interest groups that kind of come up at the end of session. Um, Meanwhile, Colin was uh, covering a committee meeting where uh, something managed to get out here at the end of session that had seemed to be dead um, and uh, actually may not have even gotten the votes to get out uh, of committee
1: Uh, dealing with uh, left-lane drivers. So uh, tell us about that. So left-lane drivers was actually one where uh, it definitely had the votes in committee. Uh, The questionable one was actually about Sunday hunting. Oh, Sunday Uh, hunting, I think. in the Senate. Okay. Um, But, yeah, in the left-lane drivers one, that was one where uh, the Senate had, uh, I think the Transportation Committee, killed a version of the bill on the Senate side, but then the House had their own version that they have moved ahead with, and uh, they got a a favorable vote in uh, the Judiciary Committee uh, this past week. The main difference between the House vote uh, uh, bill and the Senate bill is there's more of a grace period for slow left lane drivers that initially uh, the $250 fine for uh, impeding traffic by going too slow in the left lane wouldn't kick in for the first year under this House version. Uh, So the House uh, sponsors of the bill are hopeful that that would allow it to – Uh, get support in the Senate once it gets over there. Uh, But we're still awaiting a a floor vote on the House side on that particular bill. Uh, It's one of those funny ones where it's not really a partisan thing. It's got a sort of bipartisan group of sponsors, including uh, Democrat Dwayne Hall and Republican John Hardister. Uh, But you could tell from the debate in the uh, House Judiciary Committee that uh, the fault line on this really comes down to what your own driving style is as a legislator, because you could definitely tell the the ones who uh, drive fast and get very frustrated on the highway by. Uh, people who are driving slow in the left lane were were very eager to support this bill, whereas uh, some folks who uh, sounded, from their descriptions, to be much more cautious drivers, uh, were uh, less interested in this bill. And uh, it seemed more to be uh, opposed uh, to it.
0: It seemed to be that, that whatever your position is, you're really concerned about grandmothers on the road. Whether it was Greer Martin, I think it was Greer Martin, telling saying that he's, he he's he been gets flipped, flipped off by, by grandmothers, grandmothers or... and then
1: the uh, other person who's uh, sort of the main opponent on the of the bill in the committee was Representative David Rogers who is a Republican uh, from out in Rutherford County um, he, his example was that, you know, you're going to be uh, ticketing a ticketing a grandmother who is uh, just driving the speed limit in the left lane and somebody comes up behind her and they're flipping the bird at her. And uh, then suddenly the speeder is not the the person breaking the law. It's the grandmother, which the bill sponsors stressed. Uh, the speeder would still be ticketed for speeding because that's still against the law and they would lose points on their insurance. Uh, whereas this uh, driving slow uh, offense would not be a, uh, Situation where you lose points on your license and have but to pay more for insurance. But you still
2: find, right? I mean, yeah. So if someone is driving eighty in the left lane, but there are people behind this person who want to do ninety and more, so does the person who is driving eighty get a speeding fine?
1: and a slow ticket? And yeah. a slow ticket,
2: yeah. And the people driving ninety get. Speeding tickets? I mean, yeah.
1: Well, and and one interesting thing that Representative Rogers brought up, which was interesting, and he, he didn't quite couch it this way, but it clearly sort of speaks to a lot of concerns that people have about racial profiling by police and other sorts of profiling, is that in theory, a police officer could come up behind you if you're in the left lane, and if the police officer himself is speeding, which they're allowed to do... He could tell that you're, you know, in the way, and then that would be pretext to pull you over, and then they could search your car and do this, that, and the other. Uh, So he was concerned about that being a potential unintended consequence of this bill. Um, so real quick, I had my the two
0: bills mixed up there with the Sunday hunting and this left lane one. But so what happened with the Sunday hunting in committee?
1: Yeah, Sunday hunting was an interesting one um, because that's the bill that uh, you know we had a couple b- uh, bills a couple years ago that went through, and now you're allowed to hunt on Sundays, but not during church hours and not near a church. Uh, there's a bill that uh, came out of the House and is now in the Senate uh, that would allow you to. Uh, hunt on Sunday mornings as well, again, provided you're nowhere near a church. Um, and that, of course, has some opposition from some of the religious groups that, that like to keep the blue laws around. Um, and a, a fair number of um, senators were su- opposed to the bill. Um, and in fact, they called the vo- voice vote. And it was very clear from where I was sitting uh, that the no's were much louder than the yays uh, But the uh, committee chairman ruled that the uh, gays had it, the bill passed, and no one really objected, they all just kind of laughed so it almost struck me as a situation where uh, particularly Republican senators from conservative uh areas felt like they needed to oppose this bill, but they weren't really vehemently opposed to it and weren't terribly upset about it moving forward after the committee. I heard
2: in the Senate you can't call division. I mean, yeah. is that true? I think I've heard that. So yeah. In the House, uh, can,
1: yeah, if there's a if voice there's vote, a close, yeah. you can call division. And sometimes the committee chair even then will claim that you didn't call division fast <laughs> enough or before the vote, and therefore they're not going to take a, a formal vote count. In the Senate, yeah, I think I've ever been in a Senate committee meeting where there was an actual uh, count done of, of senators. It's always a voice, voice vote. And there, there have been situations in the past, you know, Senator Floyd McKissick in this particular meeting was joking that it was the Rucho rule because yeah. uh, Bob Rucho, a former senator, was very well known for chairing committee meetings and uh, calling votes that sounded uh, remarkably different from what the actual votes appeared to be in voices. Yeah, with this
2: Medicaid vote, I mean, almost everybody in the committee said they didn't like the bill. And then suddenly it was it passed it a committee. Yeah. It's, like, it's amazing how that works. Yeah.
3: But isn't it? It's the uh, whip's job to kind of make sure that there are the votes at each of these committee meetings and they're there and ready to vote. So if some one side is louder than the other, theoretically, they've, they're supposed to have the numbers.
1: Yeah. In, in theory, where they can recognize that the committee chair is on their side and that, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but you definitely see that. Uh, more of a, a Wild West approach to it in the Senate, whereas the House, when they do have the ability to call division, you can definitely tell they'll put a bill on hold while you see, you know, the whip or somebody in leadership coming in and out of the room, texting people, and then suddenly three more, you know, Republican <laughs> legislators walk in who had not been there for the first half of the meeting, and then it's time to vote.
0: And, and so the other uh, implication of that is that, so there's no, for a bill that doesn't get to the House floor or the Senate floor, there's never any record of how, who supported it and who opposed it, right, in yeah. They, don't, they don't take any kind of
1: formal yeah, vote. Yeah, so there's really no way to tell. Um, and, I mean, if, you, if you're really, you know, concerned about how your legislator voted, you would actually have to go to the committee meeting, get a seat on the front row, and, like, stare at their face to see, you know, their lip movements as to whether they were, <laughs> you know, responding during the the yes or nays.
0: Which I'm sure a lot of lobbyists do uh, stare down their yeah, I mean, there are definitely some some
1: lo- obvious. You can tell when they have a uh, some bill they're concerned about. They'll they'll be there and they'll be right on the front row. And, and uh, in fact, one of these committee meetings this week, when these one of these social issues came up, uh, I was sitting in the media corner of the uh, committee room, uh, which allows us to be fairly close to the front. But uh, before I even got there, uh, Reverend Mark Creech, the uh, uh, fiery uh, head of the Christian Action League, who's was very opposed to some of these alcohol and hunting Sunday hunting bills, uh, had the seat even in front of me. So he was. Uh, very good position to to see what people are up to.
0: So maybe taking away their coffee is a uh, as a way to uh, make them a little less attentive on some of these. Um, one more bill uh, to talk about. Uh, Lynn, you covered uh, the billboards bill, which oh, has yes. gone through a few different uh, variations on what it actually does, but um, basically it would allow billboards in more areas, right?
2: Right. Um, it would allow billboards in some areas of cities and counties that Uh, Where there are local ordinances that say billboards aren't allowed Um, The uh, League of Municipalities and uh, uh, Scenic um, America, Scenic North Carolina are opposed to it because um, It would essentially strip local um, uh, Cities and counties of some of their authority and where billboards can go Uh, The issue is um, when Streets and ro- roads are widened um, billboards on the roadsides uh, are sometimes in the way and have to get uh, have to either come down or, or move um, so uh, the way um, the bill sponsor david Lewis talks uh, talks about it is that billboard owners say well we have they're forced to take down this billboard, but then um, the cities say well there 's no place for you to to replace it so this would essentially say. Uh, cities have to put um, billboards in uh, commercial or and allow them in commercial and industrial areas. Um, the argument against is that this would allow billboards in some places where cities say they aren't appropriate. Um, the, the League Municipality says, well, they talk about industrial and commercial, but some areas are mixed use. What about those? Um some places, commercial and residential, are right close to one another. Um is it appropriate for every commercial area? I mean that's their argument is that that's why there are local ordinances. So um, you know, there's these billboard fights, you know, um over visibility and you know digitizing billboards and and um you know where they should go is an issue that comes up you know with great regularity um this is the the latest iteration of it um so we'll we'll see how it goes i mean there's uh it it got a fairly strong vote in um in committee this week of course uh the guy running the bill is uh, extremely influent- influential, um, but um, you know this isn't an era of the legislature where they care a whole lot about what cities and towns think. So, um, so um, this bill might uh, be beyond uh, beyond the grease skids. All right,
0: well, we got to a lot, but I think we need to take a break and come back with headliner of the week. Please stay with us.
2: This is a guided meditation on parenting. Find a relaxed position to let go of the time you left your daughter's blouse in the dryer too long and it shrunk four sizes, or when you donated her private diary to the public library. Deep
3: breaths. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services: Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Domecast. Uh, now it's the time for Headliner of the Week, where we talk about who's the most important person in this week's news. Uh, Colin Campbell, why don't you start? Who's your headliner? I'm of the picking
1: week? Uh, sort of a, the obscure person this time. Uh, Representative Stephen Ross from Burlington. He's a Republican. Um, and I'm giving him points this week because he's managed to, without really any vocal opposition, uh, get a sales tax increase bill uh, through uh, the House Finance Committee. This is a bill uh, that would allow for uh, the first ever municipal-only sales taxes. So normally if a, a local government wants to Uh, enact its own sales tax. It has to be at the county level, it has to be county-wide, and usually the municipal, uh, town, and city governments within the county will only get sort of a a small portion of the revenues from that they don't really have the power to enact the tax. So there was this bill filed earlier this session. Uh, originally it had in some components for the towns and cities to do uh, both a meals tax and an occupancy tax. That was taken out in the version that was rolled out um, in House Finance this week by Representative Ross. Uh, so under this system, uh, any city or town that wants to raise some money for infrastructure for economic development uh, projects would be able to uh, raise their sales taxes by a quarter cent with, of course, uh, the provision that it has to go through a referendum process and voters have to uh, agree to it. But typically, tax increases can be, even even under those circumstances, a bit of a touchy subject in the legislature. But uh, Stephen Ross managed to uh, get this bill through committee and like 10 or 15 minutes, they didn't even manage to finish his spiel on why it was a good idea before someone called for a vote, and they almost unanimously uh, passed the bill out of committee. So for, uh, for that smooth work on sales tax, uh, Stephen Ross for headliner.
0: Okay. So despite what we said earlier, cities don't say the legislature never did anything for you, or at least to. Well, yeah, at least tried, to, to, tried to. We'll to. see if that actually goes yeah, through the Senate. Yeah. I
1: think it could hit some turbulence over there. Yeah, but. yeah, I would imagine.
0: Uh, so Representative Stephen Ross in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your headliner?
5: Uh, Mine is Richard Burr, and this is kind of a self-serving nomination uh, because I wrote a fact check on him that we didn't get to touch on in the main section. We're all about self-serving nominations. (laughs) Colin just just talked about his story. So, So, um, yeah, I wrote a fact check on Richard Burr, who's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said that his committee this year has already had twice as many public hearings as in any recent year. And that sounds like an incredibly boring thing to fact check, right? But it's actually pretty noteworthy uh, because this is the committee that has been leading the investigation into Russia and ties with Donald Trump's campaign. You know, if you've seen Jeff Sessions or James Comey on TV lately, that's been uh, because Burr decided to make these hearings public instead of uh, holding them in secret. And uh, this is also the same committee that, you know, has been in charge of pretty high-level investigations like Iran-Contra, like the uh, intelligence failures that led us into the Iraq war, like the CIA torture report a few years ago. Um, And the CIA torture report had zero public hearings. We've already had five on Russia, and it's only June. Um, I think that might also speak a little bit to the – the high level of uh, public interest and, you know, and obviously uh, high stakes going on with the, the Russian investigation. But uh, he was right. And we rated that true. He's been a lot more transparent than this committee has been in the past. Uh, typically, it deals with spies and spooks and all sorts of things like that. And so they don't really like to do anything in public. And Burr actually said that he said, if I had my way, I wouldn't do anything in public. But I guess, you know, people do deserve to hear what their leaders are saying. So here you go. Um, so yeah, for that, Richard Burr.
0: All right. Richard Burr in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, after having uh, some of these high profile hearings, including just this week with Jeff Sessions, uh, Lynn Bonner, who's your headliner of the week?
2: I'm going to pick Tom Apodaca, who's a former Senator, powerful Senator, a friend of, um, Senate leader Phil Berger, and now lobbyist. Um, two of his clients Cardinal Innovations and uh, Townhouse Apartments in Chapel Hill were very much uh, topics in the legislature this week. Um, Townhouse Apartments uh, was the impetus for a bill that would um, disallow impact fees uh, in Orange County. um, And... uh, you know, there are plenty of lobbyists roaming around. Uh, there are more lobbyists than legislators uh, down on Jones Street, and uh, plenty of um, former legislators who are lobbyists, but um, I, uh, Senator, uh, former Senator Apodaca uh, popped up to uh, testify at the hearing on impact fees. You know, the uh, former legislators usually like to keep a low profile. Never, uh, I've never seen anyone um, volunteer to testify at a committee meeting. Uh, you Usually they just like to uh, sit quietly and will only uh, talk publicly when there's a demand. But uh, uh, Mr. Apodaca seemed to relish his chance at the microphone. So uh, I'm going uh, with um, our uh, old uh, mover and shaker. Tom Apodaca. He mm-hmm.
1: sat next to me at a committee meeting the other day, and it was it was kind of a bizarre situation because I felt like it was he, he's sitting there cracking jokes to me. I'm like, well, shouldn't you be on the committee? Oh wait, you're not you're not on the committee anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he didn't have any good one liners in his testimony, did he? Oh uh, uh, yeah, well,
2: he said something about uh, it wasn't the chicken guarding the hen house, but what was it? <laughs> the why are we putting uh, the wolf in charge or, or is it some? <laughs> He had yeah. some kind of crack.
0: You can usually count on him for a couple good lines. Well, so, and
5: I yeah. am a former townhouse apartment. Resident from back when I was at UNC, really? so uh, I guess uh, Tom Appadica can uh, thank uh, me for some of uh, the bills that he's getting paid now. Uh, I think they were, they were about the. Was cheapest. there a line
0: item in the in the rent in the contract that went to lobbying?
5: Or? Uh, you know, I don't remember. They were about the cheapest apartments that there were in Chapel Hill, so I'm kind of surprised that they can hire a lobbyist. Um, but.
2: You know, make it up on volume. Well, when I asked uh, Mr. Abadaka what he was doing at the committee, he told me he was doing the Lord's work. So, uh, well, I I didn't see the Lord on his list of uh, his list of clients, but (laughs) cardinals, I guess.
0: (laughs)
3: Right. Craig. Okay.
0: So Tom, 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 <laughs> top that, Craig. Tom Epidekin, for headliner of I'm the not, week. I can't so, follow that thread. I'm Craig, sorry. Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week?
3: Well, um, to kind of bring things back down to earth earlier in the week, of course, there was that terrible shooting up in Northern Virginia involving um, uh, members of the con- Congressional Republican baseball team that were practicing. And, of course, uh, a lot of us were watching it unfold on Twitter, and on television, and after kind of the initial horror, wondering what, you know, if any of our local people might be involved. And, of course, uh, Representative Mark Walker was there. He was uh, uh, on the team in practicing shaken but not but not injured. Um, then it wasn't long before we found out, as we learned more of the details, there were two Capitol Police officers uh, stationed there because Representative Scalise, who's, I think, the third in command or third in the chain of <coughs> uh, command in the House, House Majority Whip, um, he had two, he had those guys there, uh, guarding him just cause that's what they do whenever they go anywhere. Anyway, uh, one of those guards, David, uh, Beasley or Bailey, I'm sorry. Um, who, who engaged the, the shooter and went out in the, in the parking lot, kind of drew the, the gunfire away from the group huddled <clears throat> on the baseball field. He, it uh, turns out was an NC central grad. So, um, um, I, w- I would nominate him. It was kind <clears> of <throat> interesting. The game went on. I I don't know how many nerdy people watched it on C-SPAN, like I did last night. But uh, the re- the Democrats pretty well trounced the Republicans on that one. Walker uh, grounded out to, for the final out for the Republicans. But uh, yeah. and, then,
2: and didn't uh, Bailey
1: throw out the first pitch?
3: I think yeah. Bailey. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for the reminder.
2: People at that game than there were at some major league games. Last right, night.
3: there were like yeah. twenty five thousand. Uh, the major league baseball allowed the time and the you know the airtime and and they played in the national stadium, which I was kind of I thought they were just going to be playing on some dirt lot somewhere. But <laughs> uh, it's a pretty big deal, and um, so yeah, that uh, Bailey coming out to throw out the first pitch uh, on crutches was was unexpected and kind of dramatic.
0: All right, David Bailey, uh, capital police officer in the hat for headline, headliner of the week. Uh, and Matthew Adams, your last up. Who's your headliner of the week?
4: Uh, so I'm going to be, I guess, a little obscure here. I'm going to go with a guy named Marvin Wright. And, you know, around this time, you know, everybody, some high school students are dealing with graduation and stuff. Um, Marvin Wright was actually the class president of uh, Southwest uh, Edgecombe High School, and he was supposed to give a graduation speech. Um, but the school had a pre-prepared speech for him. It was about five, maybe six sentences. Um, and they were saying, well, he he didn't meet the deadline to get his speech in. So he couldn't give it. So he gets up to the podium and well, he in the end gives his own speech and everybody was applauding him and clapping and he got a lot of support. But, um, the principal actually withheld his high school diploma for two days. Um, and so there's kind of this controversy around all of that. So, uh, I have to throw uh, Marvin Wright into the headliner this week.
0: You can kind of, in the video of it, you can kind of see the principal behind him, you know, not looking real happy, kind of talking to somebody next to him when the student starts to, speak oh, to yeah. It's clear he's not delivering, he's pre-prepared. Remarks. The, his actual remarks, I think, were pretty innocuous. He didn't say, you no. Know, he didn't rant against the high school uh, or anything. He didn't. Uh,
4: they were very, you know, I thought they were very polite. He, yeah. you know, he took the high road still in it. So, it, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse. Uh,
0: so Marvin Wright in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, well, I think uh, I'm going to have to go with Craig's pick of David Bailey uh, after the uh, horrific shooting uh, this week. Uh, So, uh, David Bailey, uh, Capitol Police officer, is our headliner of the week. Uh, That's it for Domecast. Uh, For Matthew Adams, Craig Jarvis, Lynn Bonner, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, Thanks a lot. Catch us next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at Newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.